1 Corinthians chapter 5 this week and the next uh, two weeks. So we have three weeks now. We're really going to be discussing and uh, engaging ourselves in what does it mean uh, to be a mature Christian in terms of our obedience to God's Word as it contrasts to society and to the law. And we're going to uh, begin that endeavor this morning. And as I said, it's going to take a couple of weeks for us to get through chapter 5 and chapter 6 as we discuss these principles. And I invite you to turn your Bibles to the to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll be reading the entirety of the chapter, 13 verses. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done, so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ is our Passover was sacrificed. I'm sorry, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a rivaler, reviler, I'm sorry, or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together. I'm going to hit that thing. I know it's going to go flying. There we go. Well, Kelly, Kelly Whistler, Kelly Roberts, going to breathe easy today. Take a deep breath. We're all going to take a deep breath for Kelly. She just finished all of her exams, except for that big one called the bar. So enjoy your breath while you can. Hmm. So we um, are going to be taking some time appropriately since Kelly just finished up to talk about our relationship with the law of men. Now, I might say, well, that's not really what this passage is about. But it really is throughout this extent of chapter 5 and chapter 6. We have several references with regard to how do the Christian, how's the Christian community, how's the church supposed to engage uh, and be engaged in the world? And uh, what should be our role? 
And, of course, the Corinthian church is going to give us, as usual, an example to the negative. They have failed miserably in their responsibility to the community there in the city of Corinth. Uh, In many many ways, they are the little four-year-olds who never grew up, who are always just doing it their way, wanted it their way all the time. Me, 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 mine, 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 mine. And all of you were like that. Some of you, I had the nursery, so I knew you were like that. And uh, some of your kids, i got to tell you, are just like that. And so if you ever want to see human nature at its very worst, go to the nursery and try to hand out, M- or not M&Ms, what was I handing out? Cheerios. I wait for the M&Ms till they're teens. And it's the same kind of problem we have there too, by the way. We start handing out Cheerios and boy, their nature comes out. Mine! And uh, if I don't, get them their trios fast enough, oh boy, look out. You know, why are you ignoring me? And start screaming. And, and in truth, uh, that is human nature. I'm going to seek my own. And we're going to find that uh, the Corinthians were living that way. And I would contend that before we get too judgmental on them of saying, oh, shame, shame, shame on these Corinthian Christians, what were they thinking? Um, Not much has changed in 2,000 years of the church history. And I would contend that if anything, we have grown worse. And this is because God's Word says that it will get worse. And we find the church not behaving toward the world as God calls it to, to be exemplary in conduct, in speech, and in righteousness. That we are to be Known by our love for one another, not our self-love, which is the opposite of what God calls us to. Self-love is natural love. It is what you were born with. It is a result of your sin nature. And when we receive Christ as our Savior, um, we are to put to death that old nature and we are to have something else living in us and is the love of God that we should be representing to those around us. That love is not um, uh, warm fuzzies and squishy. Um, it is more substantial than that, and whether you want to, we hear the term tough love used, but it is a love that is demanding. Not only of others, but is demanding of ourselves first. And so how did God demonstrate His love toward us? Not by demanding anything of us first, but demanding something of Himself. Because He demonstrated His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were kind of good. He died for us because there was nothing we could do for ourselves. And so it began, love demands of us first. Real godly love demands something of us first before we can ever demand of others. And so in the church, before we demand anything out of the world, and we have a really bad track record even in this country of what we demand of the world um, when we demand so little of ourselves. And in that respect, we are extremely immature spiritually and the impact or lack thereof in our community and our world is evident. And so the demand today of this passage and the one to come talks about our relationship with the law of the land, with the uh, unbelievers in, in the community, with the sinners, if you will. Um, how are we to engage them and what should be the evidence that there's something different going on here in this room? There's something different going on in this heart, in this mind, uh, and that difference is the difference only God can make. 
Well, this is the point that Paul wants to bring home, that if you are really mature in Christ, this difference will be evident to everyone around you. And, it's, and if it's not there, um, there is no glorying there for the church. But we find that, like the church of that day, we find many churches glorying in the fact that come here, you'll feel comfortable. Brethren, I don't want any sinner to come in this room feeling comfortable. Because I don't want anyone on their way to eternal flame to feel comfortable about that. And shame on those churches for thinking that i got to look like, sound like, um, and give what the world expects, and somehow that's pleasing to God. We have an environment here that should be uncomfortable to those who are not Christ's, who are not God's children, and have not received Christ as Savior because of the difference that God has made in us and wants to make in them. And so we need to examine ourselves. Are we of that nature that want to be incognito in this world, that just don't want to make anyone uncomfortable? We don't want to have any arguments. We don't want to upset anyone's apple cart. That is the old term, right? You heard of that, right? Yeah. Mrs. Roberts is now to me. Yeah, I remember that. Most of these kids don't even know what apple cart is. So um, that's how you used to buy apples. You didn't buy it at the grocery store. You bought it from the apple cart came by right after the milkman so we're not gonna we're, we are gonna look at how to upset the world's apple cart and it's not going to be the way you think it's not going to be the way our founding fathers did it we'll put it like that let's pray before we get into it lord god we do thank you for the word before us we thank you for your spirit within us and in our midst and we do pray that you might uh, bring conviction in our hearts of our sin of immaturity of that which doesn't please you that you might also uh, bring encouragement to the downcast, you might also bring challenge to those who may think that we have arrived and yet have a long ways to go in your measure. Lord, no one man in his speech can communicate all that or can accomplish that, yet your word can do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that that might be at work today. Lord, we do pray for what is said, that it might not be the opinion of a man but the truth of your word might guard this time, as always, from error, from the philosophies of this world, that we might truly hear from you today, recognize the authority of that message, and surrender ourselves to it. We do pray for discernment, to understand your truth, but not only to increase our knowledge, but its purpose is to increase our faith, which is evident in a righteous lifestyle. Lord, we pray all this in this short time together. And again, something only you can do. We thank you for your willingness to work in our midst to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to the Church of Corinth and we find right away that there's a problem. Paul's already introduced one problem, and that was the divisions that were among them based upon their interests in, in exalting themselves over each other. And so we already had divisions in the church where I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus, the real spiritual ones. And uh, we are sure that that, uh, that was uh, one of the main issues. But when that's going on, it is the first evidence for Paul inside the house, if you will, of uh, an immature 
body of saints, that we're not living for God. And so we can look in the house and look at that. Before we even look at anyone else's life out there, um, before we look at how you are living your life at work, before we look at how you are living life at home, before we can have to look at how you're engaging the world, um, we can look at your life right here as a church and start to examine things and say, are we maturing as people of God? Are we becoming more Christ-like? Are we becoming more like God? And Paul looked at the Corinthian church and says, even before I hear of all the rumors that are out there of how you're living your life out there, just in the church I see evidence that there is no maturity. You're not growing in your faith. Um, and you are puffed up about it. You're, you're bragging. You're arrogant, um, which is the opposite of what the way Christians should live and walk. Um, we should be reflecting Christ, which humbled himself and became obedient even to death. And that should be the the attitude of the heart of every believer. Um, and instead we find the Corinthians this arrogance and we find this division of within their midst. Now Paul is going to go into some of the specific instances of sin that were happening, uh, that were occurring in the lives of the people in the church. And we're going to get real specific. I mean, I mean, he names one man. He doesn't name him, but he identifies him very particularly uh, we have to conclude that the gal, that which is um, his father's wife, and we can, because of the way we, he says that, we pretty much feel that it wasn't this man's actual mother, but probably his stepmother, that they were having a moral relationship, that this gal was likely not in the church. She probably wasn't a believer. She was not in the church of Corinth. And so, but here's a man who is claiming to be a Christian who is engaged in a level of immorality that Paul says, this, the Gentiles don't even want to talk about this. This incestuous relationship is not something that you should be proud about. How can you call yourselves a great church when you have this going on? And you know it's going on, and you're not condemning it. This wasn't a secret sin. This was known. And they said, well, we're free in Christ to do what we want and, and to... Uh, you know, to live our lives as we see fit. Does that sound familiar? That's the attitude of our world today. You do what you please as long as you don't hurt anybody. You don't have uh, those understanding that, yes, your moral conduct, even in private, affects society. We don't have, we've lost that concept in our world today, by and large. So we come to this statement that says, well, what matters what that guy does in his bedroom? Well, it was affecting the society. Now, Paul makes a statement here in verse um, 1 that uh, the sexual immorality reported among you, um, such sexual, sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. It's not that there was no Gentiles that ever did this. It was the whole idea that this is something they didn't even bring out as favorable. In fact, in Roman law, it was against the law. Now you got to think about that. So here's the church. We're not talking about the law of God. We're talking about man's law. Here's Roman law. And it says you are violating the law. First of all, I mean, the Romans did have some moral laws. We haven't even gotten to the law of God out of the Old Testament. And we... Hopefully, somewhere along, I are going to get the law of Christ, which we want to get to today, and we're going to be communicating over the next few weeks. But we find, here's the base law of the land. Here's the law of man, and the purpose of the law of man is 
safety and peace for its society. And you say, well, what made the Roman Empire so powerful was their elevation of virtue. They, they had these virtues that they had uh, ingrained into their society as something of great value, not only to the individual, but particularly to society at large. And they recognized that once you start to violate that in the moral areas, that it doesn't, it's not just about you and what goes on in your bedroom, it's about what impact on all of society. And the church uh, had an opportunity to at least apply the law of men. They recognize this is wrong. This, has, this is injurious to our society. It has an impact. We come then and we find this uh, horrible sin present in the church. Paul has had it reported to him, uh, probably from Timothy, whom he has sent back. Uh, wherever that report came from or whether it was at large, we find that the church wasn't really sad about it. They should have been broken hearted that this kind of activity was going on in their number, but they weren't. It says you're still arrogant. You still think that somehow that as a Christian, and, and this is the statement right out of Galatians, I am free from the law. Exactly. You are in Christ. You are free from the law. I agree with that. Um, but what you don't understand is that that freedom does not mean that you have now the liberty to go out and break the law, but rather you are free from living the law because you ought to, in Christ, be living above the law. Not that I can do whatever I want, but rather I'm going to do what God wants, and meeting the law of man should be not even thought of. Because the law of man is not good enough for the Christian life. Being exemplary in terms of keeping that law is insignificant in our living. And so we come to this and says, listen, the Gentiles know that this is evil, this is wrong, this is, this is, uh, again, and that's why they have laws against it. You should be mourning that it is going on in your midst. And so your response is that you should have been so sorry that this was happening because of the testimony against Christ and against righteousness, against all that God has done for you that you should have taken this one who's done this deed and removed him from your midst. And we use a term called, that, well, we don't, but it's commonly used in church circles of excommunication. And we're going to be, that's going to be described for us in chapter 5. This is one of the key passages that's going to deal with that. Of course, Matthew 18 is the most extensive one where Christ deals with it. But we have this instruction regarding uh, how do we deal with one who is committed to acting sinfully in our midst that is not repentant, that is engaging in activity over a period of time. This is not a single sin, but rather a continuous action of sin. How do we engage that person? Well, Paul says you need to identify this individual and remove them from your midst. Now, does that mean, well, they can't come to church anymore? Oh, it means much more than that. Excommunication in a, in a Catholic setting means, well, you... Um, I think it means you're, you're uh, doomed to hell, um, but you certainly are not allowed to take uh, communion. You're not allowed to take baptism, things like that. And that's been carried on by a lot, our last rites and a lot of other things like that. Um, and that's been carried on by a lot of other faiths. But essentially, excommunication simply means we're not going to communicate to you. You're removed from the communion of the saints. 
And that isn't just an ecclesiastical act. We think, well, that's just the church. No, it, remember, the church isn't the building. The church isn't the meeting. And so, what do I say when people say, do you go to church? My answer is, church goes with me. Where I go is goes church. Because church is the people of God. And so when we talk about ecclesiastical discipline, it is not just the pastor, it's not just the leadership, it's not just the service, it's not just the building or the ministry, it is the people that are to exercise this work of identifying and removing from our communion those who want to be committed to this kind of sin. Now remember, we're at the very base level of sin, violating the law of men the law that Kelly is now expert at and will prove it in just a few weeks. Right? We got we got some officers here too and they are they they know the law better than lawyers. They they know that, but the lawyers don't know that, but they know it. Uh, <laughs> um, if only the judges could figure out what the law is, that would really help everything, wouldn't it? But uh this is the base law of man. This guy was violating the law of the the government of an, a Gentile nation. This is the Roman world. And even the Romans saw virtue that there was necessary moral virtue whether they practiced it or not. They as a society identified it as necessary to the ongoingness of their society. And even that wasn't being kept. Identify such a person and remove them. Paul is going to exercise that authority that he has as the apostle, as the uh, church planter of Corinth. And he's going to say, I'm, going, I'm on my way there. And if this isn't dealt with by the time I get there, I've already dealt with it myself. I personally am distancing myself from this individual. I am identifying this. And I am going to direct you right now this is what you're going to do. You're going to take that individual and you're going to do something really scary. And we don't have any clue because most of us don't ever think that we have the authority to do this. We're going to give this person over to Satan. Isn't that a weird thing for a church to do? That's exactly what Paul tells them to do. This isn't the only time Paul's in, in used this reference. It's going to be also in Timothy. They tells Timothy, you know, you've got to give him over to Satan. Uh, or I've given someone else, Paul's given someone else over to Satan that he might learn not to blaspheme. Um, but here in this context, it says you're going to deliver such a one to Satan. Before you do that, in verse 5, let's look at what happens in verse 4. Before we're ready to do something like that, like delivering someone over to Satan, and we're going to talk about how serious that is, it says, first of all, you're going to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not the church's authority that we have self-possession of, this is the authority that we have as agents of Jesus Christ on earth. So we are gathering in the name of Christ. Under that authority, we are going to exercise this act. Secondly, you are gathered together. It is a corporate act. It is not an individual act, but Paul calls them as a, as a group, as a body of saints. Get together. You're going to gather in the name of Christ. You're going to get there not in the authority of, well, we are Desert Hills Baptist Church and we have these rights. No, you're gathering not in the rights of who you are, 
as a people group or as an identified entity, but rather in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Number three, you're going to do it along with His Spirit. The Spirit of who? Of Paul. So you have this apostolic authority saying gather in the name of, in the authority of Christ. You gather as a body of saints. I'm already with you on this as soon as you do that. So you have my spirit. You have my blessing. And so you have the blessing of your leadership. So you have your leadership's blessing, but they don't have the authority. Okay. The authority to act, do this thing, this horrible thing, um, doesn't reside upon me as pastor. I have a part in it. It doesn't reside upon us as a as a uh, entity on earth, but rather by the authority of Jesus Christ. You're going to do it as a group. Leadership is going to be a part of it. And the fourth part, where does the power come? The authority is Jesus Christ, and the power is Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of power are we talking about? We are going to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Do we have that kind of authority, that kind of right to do this? And do we have this kind of relationship with Satan? Let me begin by talking about, uh, let's, let's just refer to Satan's authority. Um, he does not have access to heaven anymore once Jesus Christ died rose again and ascended to heaven. Satan was cast out. Remember back in Job, he did have some kind of access in a conversation that he himself had to give an accounting to God. And, and they had that, there's a heavenly reference there. Um, but that has ended. It says since then he is prowling around this earth, his domain as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, that he is relegated here because he's already a defeated foe. You will not find him called the accuser of our brethren. That's a past tense reference to pre-Christ. And so he was there accusing righteous Job of being a fair-weather friend of God. But we don't find him in that role today um, because he no longer has that access. We find him actively going against the work of God here on earth. We, that is, who those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, um, have a wonderful condition. We're immune. Not to His influence, but to His power. Because greater is He that is in you, the Bible says, than he who is in the world. And so while the world operates based upon His principles and precepts and power, we operate based upon the principles, precepts, and power of one greater than him, and that is God Almighty. And we have that privilege to stand in our faith, and the Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against them. Satan in his finest domain has no power in, co in comparison to the power of God in us. Now, we come, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 18, and I want to references of what we're what we do when we deal with someone who is that committed to sin. Matthew chapter 18 is where Christ gives us this instruction. Wasn't going to take this time, but I think it's necessary this morning. In Matthew chapter 18, um, Christ is teaching. We pick up in verse 15. 
It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The process begins. If he hears you, which is the goal, you have gained your brother. The process is over. It begins on a private level. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, so now you've got a group, then it's the third step in the process. If we can't bring repentance, is you bring it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I sh- I surely I say to you, now here's the power. You ready? This is the authority that God gives the church. You ready? I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We like to use that to think that we can worship as a family in private at home. But the context of that passage is church discipline. Here's the exercise of your authority, church, that when you together, even if your church is as small as two or three people, and there are some places on the planet that is about the size of them because of the constraints there in some of the Middle East countries. Um, and you see a, someone named a brother that you have, you, I'm going to carry this authority that what you determine, I will abide by. That's the kind of authority God invests in the church. A church who wants to be righteous and holy and to, and to please God and identify sin. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to exercise that kind of authority. We are way down the road of making this a personal issue. We are well beyond making it a leadership issue. This has to be the whole church gathered together. You're going to turn this one over to Satan. What in the world are we asking God to do? We are not in league with Satan. Rather, we are removing from a brother divine protection from our enemy. You see, Satan is prowling already. He would like to have each and every one of you and destroy you. He's already actively looking for that opportunity. We who have trusted in Christ as our Savior have a hedge around us that He cannot do anything to us outside of the permissive will of God. And even if He should attack us in our flesh, uh, even if He would appear to have uh, victory. Uh, we know that we're secure in Christ. He can do whatever He wants to us in this world because this world isn't really my home. But what we are doing is we are simply saying, "We're gonna, you're gonna have none of this protection." What kind of protection are we talking about? Um, you'll hear my prayers change regarding such an individual. My prayers for an individual who is in sin and calls himself a brother and is, and is smearing the name of Christ um, is going to be very different. I'm not going to ask God to protect them from anything. 
or anyone. In fact, it will be quite the opposite. You've heard me pray this prayer. I know in this church, uh, God, stick it to them. What I'm really saying is, God, remove your protective hand from around that person and let them discover the destruction of the enemy. The enemy can't take away their salvation, can't take their, away their eternal destiny, but it, this whole idea of destruction of the flesh, destruction, this idea that when we sin, there, is, are, there are consequences of that. But this is even beyond the natural consequences of sin. We are talking about letting it seep in and devastate their lives even by the direct act of Satan himself, because there is no hedge around them anymore. We will not provide that kind of protection. And this, my friends, is real love. Why? Because Paul understands that if we don't get a hold of this person and get a hold of them quickly and, and, and violently even, that if we don't get their attention very soon, that the end result is the loss of their spirit. Remember, the goal of all this in verse 5 is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, Pastor, it sounds like you don't believe in eternal security. Um, not the way some paint it. No. I believe what Hebrews says. That you keep going down a certain road having once tasted of the heavenly gift that there is no hope for you. And I don't want anyone I know to get to that point. Why do I discipline my children? Because I hate them? No. Because I enjoy punishment? No. We want to deter them from escalating to the point that they destroy their lives. And where do they learn that? They learn that as four, five, six, seven-year-olds at home that... There's authority that you're going to have to deal with all your life, that there is right, that there is wrong, and that if you do wrong, there are consequences of that and, and that are far-reaching. It's not just about me controlling you. It's about you understanding that you're going to have to answer to a holy, holy God one day. And that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong out there. Whether the world says there is or not is irrelevant. I mean, you can try to ignore the giant in the room and that doesn't make him gone you can walk around him you can you can pretend he's not there but he's there that giant called truth and so i discipline my children not because i hate them but because i love them because i want to uh preserve them from the misery that come and paul says listen in a loving fashion you're going to turn this one over and you're going to remove every hedge of protection that is available spiritually to them within the confines of the church, and you're going to let Satan rip at them. And you're going to stand back and you're going to let it happen. How much of a finger are you not going to lift to help them? <laughs> Look at this. Let's jump ahead. Verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 6, 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Um, it has a whole list of uh, people named a brother and a few sins, not an extensive, not, not a definitive list, just the beginning. But look at the last phrase. Not even to eat with such a person. Oh man, that's rugged. Yeah. Yeah, it is. 
I remember one pastor, we had church discipline on an immoral man or church. Not to this degree, but it's immorality is immorality. Um, to the full extent where it had gotten all the way to the church. We had exercised church discipline. And the next week, one of our deacons and his wife said, well, we'll take him out to eat and, and try to get through to him. It's like, no. You get through to him by not taking him out to eat. And I said, wow, that's, that's intense. Yes. When we talk about removing every protection, every privilege, every uh, communion with the church, this is the degree that Paul means us to go that we have nothing to do with them, that we don't keep company with them at all. And here they are, brother in Christ. Why are we doing this? I am doing this to communicate a message to them, and that is that without Christ, you are lost. Just as when I turn my back on my children, when they're disobeying, rebellion, and un, un, unrepentant, um, they're not going to get a, a sound out of me. Well, I, because I hate them? No. Because they must repent to get right with me. Time does not make sin go away. And I find a lot of people say, over time, we'll just tolerate it. No, I won't tolerate it. And if my child is not repentant, they will never find me forgiving or ignoring their sin. I'll keep throwing it up in their face every time they come to me. And it's the same way in the Christian community. Why? Because I don't want them to live that life. We don't want them to live this kind of life because this life is going to end to their ultimate eternal destruction. I have something higher, more important, something more long-lasting that I am looking towards with my children. And so we ought to in our church, if we have genuine love for one another, we have a higher goal then just can't we all get along? We have something we want for each other that I want for each one in our church, and that is I want you to know the love of God. And I know that God's demands are righteousness. And if you refuse that, I'm not doing this to save myself. I'm not doing this because it's easy for me. I'm not going to turn away from you to this degree because um, I'm better than you. The whole point of this process is to save your spirit in the day of the Lord Jesus. Is to maybe, by letting you really suffer with no help, no encouragement, and no possibility of the same until there's genuine repentance that maybe you'll get it through your head like the prodigal son and say, what am I doing out here? I need to go back and be a slave at home. That's what the prodigal decided to do. He went, you know, the slaves at home have it better off than I do out here. But I want you to notice, the father never went and drugged the kid home. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Two sons... Older one, serving his father. Younger one says, I want my inheritance now. Takes it off to a foreign city. Squanders it. As soon as the money runs out, the friends run out. Really? 
young people, still the way it is today. Money runs out, friends run out. Well, did the father run over and say, Oh, I'm so sorry, you're so lonesome. Come home. Nope. Dad stayed home. You don't think he knew what was going on? I'm sure he knew what was going on. He stayed home. Prodigal son starts working for a pig farmer. Now, to you and I, that's not a big deal. I mean, okay, he works for a pig farmer. But for a Jewish man, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's not low. I mean, that's lower than garbage collector, okay, there. And, uh, uh, and they get paid really well. You know, I, I'm starting to think that might be a profession for me. Um, but uh, pig farmer, he's feeding pigs for a farmer. All right? And uh, the dad went over and said, oh, son, that's a disgusting. You're better than that. I, I, I raised you to be better than that. Come on, we'll get you into college. No, he left him there. Got so bad that he was sitting there and he... Whatever he was doing with whatever means that he was raising, he wasn't eating. He was hungry. In fact, it says he was sitting there going, boy, that pig slop looks pretty good. Did mom run up to the trough and say, son, get your face out of there. I got good food at home. Come on and take him by the neck and drag him home. No. They let him eat the pig slop, until finally, and we don't know how long this was, years, finally, the kid is sitting there eating slop, sitting there with the pigs, and realizing, what am I doing? That's exactly where we want to get a brother in Christ, to sit and think, what am I doing? Why am I in this slop of sin when I'm a child of a king? I'm supposed to be living like a prince. And here I am in this slop. Well, how did they get to that level? How did they degrade themselves down there? Because mom and dad stayed home and let it happen. And that's exactly what Paul is describing. Get your hands off and let him degrade by Satan's power to make his life miserable and even destroy him. You let it happen. You take your hands off, you cross the arms, not because you're better than them, not because you're mad at them, but because you love them enough to say, you have got to come to your senses on your own. Because that's repentance. When we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about, you know, I wrote that letter to you, and I didn't want to make you be ashamed, but I'm glad that you were ashamed, I'm glad that you were sorry. And, um, and by the way, the guy did come to his senses. It worked. And he came and repented and the church was still being hard on him. And Paul writes him in 2 Corinthians, now you've got to forgive the guy when the time comes. Because this isn't about punishment. And I want you to make that understood. Church discipline is not about we're going to punish you for your sin. It is about restoration. We want you to live out the results of your sin in the hopes that you'll come to your senses and realize that it is nothing but destructive to your life. And so we take our hands off. And I know that that is extraordinarily hard. And I know that some of our parents here are dealing with actual children who are making those kinds of choices. And i got to challenge you to do what God's Word tells you to do. Your child claims to be a Christian... 
you really loved them and cared about their eternity, you would have to fulfill this instruction. Take your hands off. No help. No aid. No comfort. You treat them as an enemy of Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew. Not because they are your enemy, but because you love them enough to let their flesh be destroyed in the hope they come to their senses and realize this isn't who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do. Now there's a exception to this. Everything I've said so far is reserved for one group of people. And we skip verse 9 and 10. And I want you to understand that this is reserved for what happens in this room. For the people called by our church. Someone named a brother, someone who is claiming to know Christ is who we're talking about. How do we relate then to those in the world? Um, let me share with you um, the law of the land um, is not our responsibility to enforce. We have police officers and court systems and the National Guard and all of that. Now, I'm going to step on some really dangerous territory here, okay? In our history of our country, our founding fathers wrote extensive papers trying to rationalize the rebellion of our country against England. And they tried to use the Scriptures to do that. And I want to share with you that they were wrong. do not have a divine right to exercise biblical principle or Christianity upon the world. In fact, I would contend that it is itself an evil. Why? I live with that evil every day. I see my children living with the results of that evil every day as they encounter unbelievers on their track team. Because you know what their track team says? I'm an American. I'm Christian. I don't need anything because I'm an American. I'm a Christian. And that's moving. And we're moving away from that. Our president has told us that, that we're not a Christian country anymore. Um, some people are starting to believe that. Um, the fact is, is that he was absolutely right. He told the truth. He's the first president that's done that, really. It might be the only truth he ever said. I don't know, but <laughs> he told that truth. We are we. Now, what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that from Paul's description here, I did not mean that any of these rules apply with sexually immoral people of this world. It is not the church's responsibility to impose our morality upon society. It is not our job. Jerry Falwell was wrong. We cannot legislate it. And we don't even want to. What do you mean you don't want to? I don't want to legislate it. Why? Because I don't want people to be forced to be good and think that they're good enough for heaven. Because of fear of the government, fear of the military, fear of the police, fear of whoever, that they walk 
you know, uprightly. I don't want them to. I prefer that they be evil. Because then I can point out and say, you're evil. And, well, I know it, but, you know. Um, but no, when I encounter people, says, I'm not evil because I keep the law. Our founding fathers and many in the church have erroneously taken a step that Scripture specifically tells us not to do. This does not apply outside the church. We have no right, no obligation to come to the world and say, this is how you ought to live. And so I will preach vehemently from this pulpit against any of you having an abortion. You will never see me try to impose that upon our society. Is it wrong? Yes. Does society know it? Yes. But if they don't want to acknowledge it, that's their business. They'll answer to God for that. Will I preach from this pulpit that homosexuality is sin? Absolutely. Any of you caught in it, we'll throw you out of here and we'll sick Satan on you. If that's a good way to phrase it. We're not going to sick Satan on you. We're not in league with him. But we will remove all protection. You won't... He heard me praying for you to get out of trouble. The reverse. But do I go to the world and pose that upon them? No. They have their judges. They have their, ultimately, God to be their judge. They'll have their consequences. The church's primary responsibility is within her own body to say, we have a standard that we have the authority to impose on ourselves. You claim to be Christian? Okay, here's the standard. And it's not the law. Sorry. It's a lot higher than that. It's not even the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. It's a lot higher than that. Jesus says the Ten Commandments, the law, I fulfilled the law. The law is finished. I've completed it. Now, don't worry about murder. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder? I say, don't hate. Suddenly, we're not worried about murder, are we? If we're throwing out people from the church for hating. Yeah, that's our law. You got hate in your heart? That's sin. In God's sight, that's as evil as murder. Get it out of there or get out of here. Get it out of you or get it you out of here. Maybe that's our job. Christ says adultery shouldn't be an issue. Lust, there's an issue. You see where we live? This is our law. We don't have to worry. We shouldn't be engaging in adultery because, and not because of the, the, you know, it's against the law in our country. I don't know. Is it still against the law? If it is, it's nowhere enforced that I know of. Um, no, and, and well, the Ten Commandments say, I shall not commit adultery. That's not why we don't do it. We don't ever even worry about that law. I don't worry about that law because there's a law up here that says, of Christ that says, don't lessen your heart. Get rid of this. The other stuff will never happen. This is the level God calls us to. How horrific when the church can't even live up to man's level.
Then we look at God's law, the Old Testament, and say, well, that's pretty good. Um, we're living above that one. Our righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees who were the experts at the law of Moses. We have to be better. Why? Because Christ has made us better. He has made us in his in the image of His Son, that we have been given His righteousness and now we are to walk worthy of it and shame on a church that immorality is going on when there shouldn't have even been lust going on. And so this exercise is for within the church. It is not our job to impose this upon our society. Does that mean that we just look at it and laugh? No, we point and say, that's evil, it's sin, your conscience knows it. But it's not to change society. It is to change the heart of that person that they individually might come to recognize, man, I'm a terrible sinner and I've been really screwing things up and, and I'm going to have to answer to a God that's perfect and I don't measure up. I need to get saved. Now the law of Christ can be applied when they repent and turn from their sin, trust in Christ. They can come into the church and now they're living in this law and no longer are these laws down here a concern. Because if I'm living this law, keeping that law isn't difficult. And our founding fathers and many of our church predecessors here in this country have horribly confused this. And we have been rightly condemned by some of our fellow Americans for what we are trying to do. You cannot by law or by your vote, impose the righteousness of Christ on anyone. Will society break down as our laws deteriorate? Yes. Should they break down? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Why? Because maybe at some point society will say, what are we thinking? This is horrible. We need something else. And shame on the church for not showing something else. Why do I live the way I live? Isn't because I'm afraid of a cop arresting me. It isn't because one of you is going to show up with a copy of the Ten Commandments and say, Pastor, you're not keeping this one. It's because I serve a living Savior who has given me His righteousness. And I want to live up to it. And this is the call of God on the church. Not to impose righteousness on the world, but to live it in front of the world. And shame on the church if we don't. The Corinthians were wrong. They should have been sorry. They should have been broken hearted that the world looked at them and said, they sin as bad as us. Yes, we have a responsibility corporately as a body, as a group here today to do right. But each one of you walking out of this place has a responsibility before God to be a testimony to Jesus Christ by walking out here and doing right. That our words are true, virtuous, 
just. That our hearts are not self-seeking, but desiring to sacrifice for others. That we have genuine love for others. That we esteem them greater than ourselves. That we seek the benefit of all those around us. That I seek to make my boss money. Because that's why he hired me. And so I'm going to work hard. Not for a pat on the back, but so that I can testify of Christ. But I'm not going to use that unstamped postage stamp another time. I'm not going to defraud my government just because I can. And no one will know. That when the clerk doesn't quite scan everything right, I'm not going to walk out the store and say, Woohoo, I got away with one. Because I'm sure that if it was the other direction, you'd make sure that it got fixed. We live at a higher standard. There should be no fear of the law, so we pray for those that produce the law and those that that have the authority to uh, exercise that and to impose that. We pray for them because we recognize that it's to our benefit, to our benefit, to our peacefulness for them to do so, but it is not saving the world. Only Christ can do that one soul at a time. So we have no right nor obligation to go to our government and say, you need to make our laws look more like the Bible. Here's what our obligation is. Is to go out into society and make our lives look more like the Bible. And when men see the difference, they'll say, what do you have that we don't? And that wasn't the testimony of the Corinthians. Oh, that the world might look at us and say, you've got something. You're living lives differently than we've ever seen. I want that. Because it surpasses anything going on around me in society. Let's pray.